Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with a peer and leave us a review. My guest today is Scott Barstow. Scott has founded and led tech companies and teams throughout his career and now supports the Pacific Lake portfolio as an operating partner focused on building great software product and engineering teams. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Scott through my chief of staff role with HW Media and Pacific Lake's executive leadership program and I think highly of his perspective on software and team construction. Scott has spent years thinking about what makes high-performing product orgs work, and in this episode, we dive into key characteristics of high-performance and how software CEOs can implement them in their own product orgs. We talk about key fundamentals like culture, communication, ideal customer profile, to more complex topics like Conway's Law, the role of leadership, and recruiting tactics and strategies. Please enjoy this fantastic episode with Scott Barstow. When it comes to accounting, quality of earnings reports, and financial due diligence, it's vital to have a partner who understands your business and what you're trying to accomplish. Jerry Joe and his team at Hood & Strong in San Francisco have a specialty for search funds and lower middle market private equity, with multiple podcast guests today trusting them with their partnership. Email jerry at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com to learn more. For advice and observations on accounting for small companies, Here's Jerry himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. What goes into the tax diligence portion of a quality of earnings report? So the tax diligence that we were thinking about is most of the small business that we, we take on in the acquisition is they are usually S-corps, partnerships, uh, pass-through entities. So from that standpoint, generally speaking, the income tax piece is removed that just doesn't get transferred to the buyer if it's structured properly. But other tax that potentially can carry over to the buyer with exposure are what we call the trust fund tax. And this includes payroll tax, sales tax. And what we do on the quality of earnings is that we take on some limited procedures around what's relevant from that standpoint, namely what's what's the exposure that the buyer can expect. And around you know, payroll tax, sales tax. The sales tax is, is one that has become a lot more tricky these days, uh, especially with the South Dakota versus wafer that got introduced back in 2018. We're seeing a lot more states that are going after business based on where they're selling to. So the, the, the business has the responsibility to collect, remit, and file sales tax returns in a state that their customer resides, as opposed to where the business is uh, where the employees are. And this affects a lot of the software transactions that we see. And part of the scope is that we want to be able to at least have a high level analysis and evaluation of whether there's any significant exposure that we think in those specific area. And if there is, then we can uh, narrow down and be more focused to quantify what that exposure that the buyer needs to be aware of. Great. Thanks, Jerry. To learn more about Hood & Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Ravix Group and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. 
This will be a really fun conversation all around building high-performing product orgs and you know, looking at the tech side of, of a software business. I think what may be a helpful place to start would be just framing what the goals of a product org are and then outlining a couple key roles and positions within a well-performing, high-performing product org. What a lot of companies have the misconception about is that if you're building a software company, the purpose of that company is to build software and sort of write code and build products and that sort of thing. And I think what often gets the what often gets lost sight of is that the the product that is there in service of the business, which is obviously create value, serve customers well. And I think if you can if you can keep that as sort of the number one thing that you focus on, it tends to lead to things where you're not, where you don't waste time, or you're more disciplined about the work that you undertake. As there's this thing that I say, and I don't, I don't claim that it's original, but the most expensive thing that any software company does is write software and put it into production. And so the, the less of that that you can do, the better, which sounds counterintuitive. It's like, well, if I was a manufacturing company, the goal of that company is to manufacture as many things as possible and sell them. But I think in a software business, it's actually to do as little as possible in service of taking care of your customer well, because it's just incredibly expensive to write the software, test it, deploy it, make sure that the it stays up and running. And all those things are just very expensive activities over the lifetime of a, of a particular product. And so having some discipline and some, yeah, just, yeah, I guess some discipline around how you make decisions about what goes into a product and what stays out, I think is probably the number one thing that tends to get lost. As to your question about key positions, generally speaking, there are in any product, software product organization, we can talk about the difference between a software product company and other kinds of technology companies if we want to go down that road. But in a software product company, you'll generally have a head of product and their job is to understand the needs of the customer, go out, interact with the market get feedback from the rest of the organization and sort of arrive at, here's what we should be working on as a company based on all of the information I've collected, all the data we've collected from our application about how our, how our customers use it, et cetera. So that's sort of the role of product, understand the customer, understand and prioritize the work to be done, and then interact with the other sort of key position in a software business, which is typically a head of engineering that can be called a chief technology officer or the engineering organization in general. And those are, that's the group that actually creates the product and puts it into production and makes it available to the customer. So I, those are the, those are the kind of the two big parts of a software organization. We can, we can get into the details on either one of those. Yeah, there's definitely lots of points to dive into, but what does uh, how do you define a product software company? And then let's dive into the other ones. What are the other forms of technology companies you see? 
Yeah, I think you can have a, so their software product companies are, are companies that, as the name might imply, build a product that you sell. So think salesforce.com, Slack. The, the company's purpose is to build a product that customers buy and use, as opposed to, let's say, a tech-enabled business. So a good example might be a company that uses and builds their own software in service of, it might be a manufacturing company or you know, another kind of services company that still has technology and software at its core and is critical to the value that uh, they deliver to the customer, but they're not selling that product to their customers. They sell something else and software is a part of, of how they deliver the value of whatever that other product might be. And then how do you de- break up the, you touched on it very briefly, but between product and engineering, what are the key differences between those two teams and how do they interact with each other? I think the, so the biggest difference is product organization doesn't write software. That's probably the most fundamental difference. So their job, as I, as I alluded to earlier, their job is to really to speak on behalf of the customer to the rest of the organization and prioritize. They also typically also in a product, in the par- product part of the organization, that's where user interface design happens and other things like that. So there's, there's other things that happen inside the product organization, but the fundamental difference is there's no software engineers in the product part of the organization. However, in a high performing organization, both product and engineering are working very closely together all the time. And what that tends to look like if it's done well is there's a there's a model out there that uh, Spotify sort of perfected and put a name to called squads and what typically happens is you'll have multiple squads or groups of people working together on a given part of a product so it might look like a given team or squad might look like you've got someone from the product organization on that team You've got five or six engineers on that team. You might have a UI UX person. If you're still doing manual testing, you might have a QA person on that team. But the goal is that that individual team has everybody on it that they need in order to deliver value to the customer for whatever area of the product they're working on. So A good example, one that everybody knows, or one that probably everybody listening to your show uses, if we think about Slack, Slack might have, you know, multiple teams working on the Mac client. They might have multiple teams working on the iOS client. They might have multiple teams that work on how they integrate with other applications. And each one of those teams would sort of be self-contained and be able to do everything they need to do to deliver value. That's a, that's a high-level overview of how they tend to interact. I think good teams, the, on good teams, the, the product and engin- engineering teams are in constant communication. A lot of times, product teams will pull engineers into customer conversations so that engineering can get a direct 
direct input and hear what the customer is saying directly as opposed to it coming through a filter. Uh, so there's those kind of things that you can do, but generally it should be very open, free-flowing communication between those two parts of the org. That's kind of a new discovery for me, learning about how product orgs are organized, is that the product team is talking with customers and having those customer calls and doing it on a frequent basis. I, I just assume that the only folks talking to customers would be sales, customer service, and then you know, maybe certain key executives, but that'd be, that'd be it. But it seems like, it seems obvious that a product org should be talking to customers, but I didn't really put two and two together. So that was a, that was an interesting discovery. Yeah, I think there's a, I think it's a common misconception, number one. And I think what, if you talk about the difference between, say, a product-driven organization, and that's where, like, the product team is sort of making all these decisions, as opposed to what you were just talking about uh, and what is, is very common, and neither one of these are bad or good, but a sales-driven organization will generally, you know, whatever the sales team comes back with, so your salespeople are out there selling and they're hearing, hey, we know, you know, if your product only had this, we'd buy it. And a lot of times what will happen is the sales team will drive the product roadmap just through what they're hearing from the customer. And in that case, it's a lot, it can be a lot of like the biggest customer always wins or whoever's yelling the loudest or whoever has the biggest deal sort of hanging on the hanging around. Yeah, sort of drives the priorities for the company. There are lots of companies that operate that way and lots of very successful ones. I think what we're talking about on this on this episode is you know, what does it look like to do to have a product-driven organization as opposed to a sales-driven organization? But you're you're absolutely right and I think it's it's more common than we all wish it was to just have you know, sort of sales be the voice of the customer. So whose role is it to take input from both sides? Because both are, are going to be coming with ideas or feedback from customers, both from product and sales. Whose job is it to determine priority of, of features and how they fit within your intended roadmap? Yeah, I think it's so, generally speaking, the head of product should be, the per, should be that role their job is to, in the end, own the priorities and own the product roadmap. And then ultimately, they're held accountable by the rest of the organization for making those decisions well. So if they say no to a particular request that's coming from sales, let's say, at some point, there's a reckoning, and it usually shows up in just like, are we selling? Are we are we retaining our customers well? Are we competing with our the others in the market and winning based on the fact that we have what our customers are asking for? So I think it tends to show up in the macro metrics of a business, whether it's new new sales, retention of existing customers. That's sort of the ultimate judge for the job that the head of product or the product organization is doing. So if there's conflict, and there almost always is, because everybody thinks that what they're working on is the most important, generally how that works itself out is that you'll have a, 
a group of people, not just sales and product, but customer support, maybe the executives weigh in. But generally speaking, there's a there's a group of people who will review the list of priorities and make a decision based on whatever prioritization framework that company uses. Uh, so it's it's a squishy process. There's not a, I don't think there's a hard and fast one. Every company does it differently. But generally speaking, in the end, there's a group of folks who agree on what the priority should be. And then it's up to the product organization to sort of go away and deliver those with the help of engineering. You also talked about how these these groups are constantly in communication with each other. What does effective communication look like for product orgs across engineering and sales and other other different teams and, and internally as well? It's a very complex, nuanced answer. I think generally speaking, I think I'll try and answer the question in what I believe to be the f- important concepts for what makes an organization that communicates well work. I think generally it's full transparency is probably number one. And so if we're making decisions and we're changing directions or whatever might be happening, we're communicating all the time about why we're doing what we're doing. So if we're, in my example, if we decided we were going to build feature A and a month later we make the decision because we have a big customer and that big prospect and that prospects wants feature B, what high-performing teams will do is, okay, if we're going to change direction, let's all talk about why we're changing direction. Do we all agree that we should be changing direction? And then what are the implications of changing direction? So if we're going to build feature B before we build feature A, what does that mean? What do we have to set aside? What's not going to get done? Who's going to be impacted by that? Did we make promises to other customers to build feature A? If so, how are we going to communicate to them? And so there's a lot of both formal and most, I would say, mostly informal communication just around why are we making the decisions that we're making? And I think if everybody's has an understanding of why we make the decisions we make, it tends to eliminate the finger pointing that might happen at the end of that process where, you know, somebody, a salesperson that made a commitment to customer A about feature A, maybe we give them the tools to have a conversation with that, with that customer and say, look, we're not going to be able to get it done this month or this quarter, but we are committed to getting it done next quarter. Here's what that means for you, et cetera. So I think it's a hallmark of successful organizations. I think number one is just transparency that we're all, no decisions are being made in secret that anybody's going to be surprised about. And then flipping it around, what is a, what are some symptoms of bad communication that you often see? Yeah, I think the, there are a few. I think the the big one that is a real clear signal that the organization is not functioning well is that there's a there's a lot of reprioritization happening all of the time. And so that might look like 
It's very common in these organizations, very common that every two weeks or every month we're actually changing priorities. And the what that the with the downstream effects of that on the rest of the organization, it would be hard to overstate the just the ripple effect and what that causes um, with the rest of the organization. And so if you're constantly changing priorities, stopping work and starting new work and not ever coming back and finishing the work that you had in progress, generally a symptom of just like, maybe we don't really understand what we're trying to get done here and we're just responding to whichever customer is screaming the loudest and we don't have a real framework for making decisions and sticking to them. That would be probably number one. The second would be it's a lot of blame shifting. If you think about, you know, sales, product, engineering, the frequent conversations that happen there in poor functioning organizations are, you know, you'll hear things like the engineering team never delivers on time. I can't tell you how many conversations I have about that specific issue. Or the sales team is always selling things that we don't have. That's another big one. And I think what it's, it's a symptom of the fact that you have a system that's not set up for success. If you start to hear those kinds of things throughout and everybody's blaming everybody else, as opposed to, hey, we're all on the same team. We made this decision to change priorities and we all have to live with it. Well, whether that was right or wrong, maybe we have a retrospective about that at some point and figure out, hey, we built the wrong thing here. Maybe we shouldn't have changed directions. How do we not do that again? But I think that just having frequent sort of blame shifting and conversations where everybody's pointing the finger somewhere else when you're not delivering is another one. And I think the the third one I'd probably highlight is that there's lots of surprises. Uh, and what I mean by that is everybody in the org organization expects that we're shipping a particular feature you know, at the end of this month and we get to the last week of the month and it's a surprise that it's not ready or it's a surprise that we decided to not do that and change direction. So anything, anytime you're, uh, you're not sort of getting bad news early and uh, making that well-known and figuring out what that means, it's generally just like the organization may not be communicating well. So those are three. There's there's other ones, but those are maybe the top three or four. Yeah, and we haven't talked about the the CEO's role in any of this quite yet. How do they fit in to that kind of prioritization of features, the the push and pull with the sales team, product management decisions? How do they how do they fit themselves into the this organization? In a high-performing organization, the CEO's role, hopefully, if they've got the right people in head of product, right people in head of engineering, good head of sales, their job is to really help resolve disputes. So if you know, sales believes one thing and product is firmly convinced that we should be doing something else, uh, I think it's the CEO's job to sort of sit in the middle of that conversation and weigh both sides against, hey, where are we trying to go as a business? And 
ultimately, if there's a decision to be made and, you know, the other parties can't agree, the CEO has to, has to make the ultimate decision because that's why they're there. I think that in a high-functioning, high-functioning organization, the CEO and roles like that, they're obviously, they, they contribute product, you know, company strategy, company vision is, and their job is to really understand, are we, is all this stuff that we're doing lining up behind what we all agreed to as a company, where we're trying to go? And I think those are the two big things. I think if a CEO is down in the weeds and getting involved in the minutia, it's not that it doesn't work. And there are plenty of CEOs that are really good at, I think if you have a visionary CEO who cares deeply about product, you can expect them to be more involved in product decisions and things like that. So it's not that there's a right or wrong answer here. I think generally speaking, especially as a company grows, you really want the CEO doing CEO things. And that, that shouldn't be necessarily working on the details of a product roadmap, let's say, or things like that. And it sounds like a, a culture that has a lot of transparency, good communication, CEOs effectively resolving disputes, and you have talented people. It seems like there's a lot of, of trust in an organization like that. And that's a, a goal to aspire to. And you talked about some of the benefits of a high trust organization. You can move faster. There's more delegation happening. You've talked about a couple of things, of course, that contribute to trust, like communication and transparency. But what else contributes to a high trusting organization? I think a big one. So autonomy is a huge one. Uh, I always reference Dan Pink's framework of autonomy, mastery, and purpose. I think those three things are the, if they're present in an organization, tend to drive successful outcomes. So does everybody have an understanding of why they're doing what they're doing? Are they given the opportunity to build their skills, learn more about the company, all those kind of things? And then finally, does the organization promote autonomy and flattened decision-making such that, you know, you don't punish people when somebody makes a bad decision. There's, it's not a culture of punishment. It's much more like, okay, what can we learn? We made, a, we made the wrong turn here. You know, what can we learn from that? And obviously if that happens over and over again, you probably have the wrong person. So those, you know, autonomy, I think autonomy, mastery, purpose, I kind of talked about those in reverse. The big one that you didn't mention and I haven't mentioned yet, I think is ownership. And that is like, I have a, I have a sense and there's a collective sense. And then I, as an individual, I have a sense of like the work that I do matters and I'm free to make decisions and doesn't, and I get more responsibility, the better I demonstrate my ability to make decisions and things like that. I think there's a ownership is just an incredibly important value in a, in an organization. And I think the last one I would probably highlight, and there, there are several others, but I think the last one I'd highlight is humility. I think there's a, in every organization I've been a part of that I consider to be outstanding, nearly everyone on the team was, first of all, willing to take 
solicited input from others on the team about, you know, here's what I'm thinking. Uh, what do you think about that? And then if something, if they didn't agree, if someone else doesn't agree with the direction you're taking, willingness to sort of take a look at it and say, huh, I might be wrong here. Or maybe the way I'm thinking about it isn't the best way. So just being open to critique and being humble enough to sort of take it and realize that in the end, it's ultimately not about me and what I do. It's about what we do as a group. Those are a few things that come to mind. What else have you seen some of your favorite or highest performing product orgs do? The ones that you've worked with and come across, what else stands out to you? I worked for a CEO a long time ago and they had this mantra that was drive fast, take chances. And I think there's a, there's a certain amount of risk taking that's really important in any healthy and productive company. And it sort of goes to the, it's a bit of a blend of potentially of autonomy and, and ownership, but just encouraging people to stub their toe and make decisions and be willing to, as long as it's not going to, you know, take the company down sort of decision-making, just saying things like, do what you think is best and run fast. And if it's wrong, we'll come back and revisit it. But I want you to make decisions and, and be comfortable owning the decision that you make and being willing to be held accountable if it's wrong, wrong and be willing to be you know, rewarded if it's right. So I think that's a big one. And I think a corollary to that is, I think most people when asked, what do you think I should do? We all want to give like, oh, I've seen this before. Here are the three things you need to go do. What I've tried to get a lot better at as I've gone along in my career is saying, well, what do you think we should do? As opposed to me answering your question, you know, what do you think we should do? Or have you talked about this with others on the team? And why can't you resolve this within the team? I think there's, there's something to be said for, uh, about just constantly thinking about how do I design an organization and a way of making decisions that needs as little input from managers and others as possible. So I think there's technical things that go into that, but it's a lot of it. There's this saying, and, and I'll forget the name of the law here, but there's a law that's like you, you basically, you shift the organization. Oh, Conway's law. Conway's law, yeah. And that's like, that to me is like a fundamental truth. If you have an organization that's very top down, your pro that will be reflected in your product. If you have an organization that encourages decision, quick decisions and things like that, that will be reflected in how you deliver your product. And so yeah, I think all of the things around, if you just keep that as a sort of a fundamental tenant, like we're gonna design an organization and this is inevitably is how we're going to ship our product. That tends to be where things show up the most. Yeah, we had a Joel Peterson on the podcast recently. He talked about pushing decisions as far down the organization until it hurts. That sounds like a similar similar idea. Like try to get decision making as close to the actual work as you can. 
Yeah, I think there's a, you know, there's this concept in software, and I, but it's, I think it's true generally of building anything, this concept of cycle time, which is basically how long does it take you to get from idea to that idea showing up in a customer's hands? And like, how good are you at that process end to end? And I think there's a, for organizations that are struggling to deliver, I think potentially focusing on like, how long is it taking us to get through this process end to end? And it often, if you can just start paying attention to what's going on there, it tends to expose like, oh, we have this bottleneck in a part of the organization. We have it. We really struggle getting our requirements fully written down. Why is that? Or we really struggle once something is ready to get worked on. It takes a long time for our team to pick it up and work on it. Why is that? I think there's a lot of stuff to be learned about your company. If you can just think about, we have this process that goes from idea to it winding up in a customer's hands. How, how do we get better at that cycle and get faster as an organization? There, I, you tend to learn a lot, a lot of lessons if you just focus, focus on that. I imagine it varies based on feature and what you're building, but how long should that take from idea to something being shipped? Is there a, a helpful benchmark or rule of thumb? I don't think so. I think, it, as you said, there are some that will, parts of it that will take, you know, the things you can ship that will take months for you to build the whole thing. I think what what good organizations do is that they they build the smallest piece of that that they possibly can that will demonstrate whether it's value additive for a customer and they'll get that into a customer's hands as quickly as possible. And so I it's I I don't have a hey everything should take 2 weeks sort of thing. I think it's much more is every part of the process as finely tuned as it can be. And if you're focused on that, what will tend to happen is that you will build things in smaller chunks, which is sort of the underlying principle of how you go fast is you build lots of things, but you build small piece, you build it in small pieces. And I think if you can do that, generally speaking, you'll be able to put things in customers' hands more quickly, get feedback more quickly, and those kind of things. I think there and and just to give you a sense of like the kind of how the biggest companies in the world operate. I was at a, I was at an event, this was probably four or five years ago now, where I got to listen to the head of delivery for Facebook for like two hours. And he talked about how Facebook delivers software. It was absolutely staggering how frequently they ship things. And, and I'll, I'll butcher the stats, but at the time it was something like, there was six months of features in, let's say, the iOS app that, you know, no customer was even aware that they had uh, because they are constantly turning things off and turning things on with, and turning them on for a very small percentage of their user base, seeing how the user base responds. But the, this, this, the pace at which they are able to ship software was absolutely mind-boggling. So that I mean, they're doing thousands of releases a day. Facebook versus a company that might do you know, a release once a week, or they might do one release per day. The the time scale is 
a bit all over the place, depending on the kind of company, kinds of customers you have, those kinds of things. But uh, like Salesforce ships, I, their traditional release cycle for the last, gosh, 20 years now has been they ship once a quarter. They're, but it's clockwork. I can't recall a time when they've ever missed a quarter. So it's uh, it's all over the place. So when you say like some will ship every day, some will ship once a quarter, are there pros and cons to each kind of frequency of release? Or how, do, how does that get decided? If you had a, if you're a smaller company and, or let's say you've got a comp, you've got a product that your customers are, uh, are change resistant. So a good example might, you might be in the healthcare space where your customers don't like a lot of change. And every time you do a release, maybe there's a compliance issue, uh, compliance component to it or things like that. I think there, there are, there are products where it makes sense to go a bit more slowly and be more careful because your customers don't want, they're, they're intolerant of something breaking. Like it affects their ability to make money or things like that. If you're thinking about like, you know, ERPs or things like that, they're industry specific. Maybe you go a little bit more slowly. Consumer companies like Facebook and others tend to run very fast because, and ship frequently because what they want and what they need is they need to get these ideas out and into the hands of their customers in a very, you know, they might pick, we're only going to enable this feature for 1% of our traffic for the next two or three hours and see what happens. So they're operating at a scale where that feedback, they can then take that feedback and roll that back in. Okay, here's what we learned. You know, when we turned this on for 1% of our customers, nobody could figure out where the submit button was and nobody could figure out how to use it. We need to turn it off, go fix it, try again. And so there's those kind of things that, but, you know, there's very few companies that operate at a scale where you can get that sort of meaningful feedback in, you know, that short of amount of time. Yeah, that's impressive. I think it makes sense for the second half of our conversation to focus on the kind of the expanding org chart as the company grows in the in that massive high performing product org framework doc. You had a number of org charts over time as your product org grows and what that looks like and what new roles make sense. And I think also a recruiting discussion would be really helpful and interesting, but you work with a lot of CEOs who have software or running software companies in kind of the maybe the five to 10 million ARR range. And they, you know, product org is like there's, you know, missing components or it's not as fully functional or high performing as they want it to be. Could you maybe describe what a, what the typical product org looks like at that five to 10 million ARR range and then how it begins to evolve and, and scale over time? Sure, I'll take a I'll take a crack at it. I think a lot of times when you're running a software business that's five to ten million, the organization can be generally takes on one of two forms. So if the let's say the founding CTO is still in the business, or 
you know, the company still is kind of the same personnel that it was as the company grew from, you know, one to three to five. Generally, those organizations tend to be, they tend to evolve as like, it's still one big team because that's what everybody is used to and everybody gets along, everybody works well together. It might be a team of, you know, 10 or 15 engineers, something like that. And everybody kind of knows each other and everybody's working on more or less the same things. However, at some point you'll hit, uh, you'll hit a wall where that organization can only go but so fast. And so what the, what the better organizations then tend to do is, you know, we talked earlier about these teams of anywhere from seven to 10 people on a given team that can work on a given piece of the application and deliver value to the customer. What the good organizations do is start to evolve toward a team-based model where each team is, like I said, six to 10 people or something like that. And Amazon has this rule for team size that's become famous. It's called the two pizza rule. And basically you should never have a team that you can't feed with two pizzas. It should always be at least that small. And what you want to evolve toward is an organization of multiple teams that are small, self-contained, independent. And then over, over top of those, you might have, you know, there's an engineering manager that everybody on all of those teams reports to for typical HR things. So what's my, you know, raise, what am I, what am I being promoted to? All of the typical HR functions might roll up to a given manager that, that spans all of those teams. Um, so it's a bit of a blend of you've got, if you, the way I think about it and talk about it is you've got kind of a functional org chart, which is, this is how we run things day to day. And then there's the reporting org chart, which is how all of the HR things take care of. So who do you actually report to, you know, who manages you, all those kind of things. And those can be, those can look very different and that's just fine. What are some of the the first moves that are helpful in moving towards that that team's model? So if it's still in the 10 to 15 people all working together as one group, maybe engineering and product is, you know, four or five of the 10 people, what, what are some of those first steps or two? What a, what a lot of companies will do with anything, I think, in a software company, and maybe it's true of other businesses, but this is the one I've seen the most, is small changes tested over time tend to stick, whereas big changes, big sweeping changes tend to come with, uh, tend to create a ton of mess. And so what you might do in a situation where everybody's been on the same team and knows how to work together, but you need to hire you know, let's say you're getting ready to hire five new people and you've now hit the point where you're beyond that. You really need to go and you need to break the organization into two teams. What you might do is take some of the folks from the existing organization, maybe one or two of the new hires and create a small team. And you use that team to prove out all of the changes that you need to make. So what does it look like to assign tasks to that team that the rest of the organization doesn't know anything about. How do we communicate to that team? 
how does that communicate? How does that team communicate back to the rest of the organization about what they're doing? Are they on schedule? Are they not? So there's a lot of learning that has to take place as you evolve. And what tends to work best is to start with, you know, one or two small teams and have some ideas about how you want things to evolve, but it's not, every organization's different, the personnel are different. And so then then you just learn. You assign, you start to assign work to that team and you learn based on real work, what works in your organization, what didn't you think of around communication or any of these things we've talked about on our, on the show, what didn't, what didn't we think about that we should have thought about? Uh, let's get those things in place. Maybe do a few more sprints or a few more iterations on things until we feel like we've got the model right. And then that's sort of the model you roll out to the rest of the team. You start moving the rest of the team that direction. But by and large, you want these things to be small evolutionary changes to the extent that you can. And when do certain executive roles like CTO become necessary? So most companies will, at founding, most software companies will have a technical founder that assumes the CTO role effectively. So I think uh, there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding about what a CTO does. And to be fair, the role changes dramatically from when it's you and someone else, you know, and it's you or it's you and two or three other engineers, the person that's the CTO at that size company is doing very different things than the person that's the CTO at 5 million or 10 million. And so the role evolves and oftentimes the person that's in that chair may not be the right person to be the CTO of a $5 million business that was the CTO of a $1 million business. That CTO in the early stage is much more hands-on, much less leader versus a, an individual contributor that happens to have some people reporting to them because they have to report to somebody. But generally speaking, it's a, it's a small team of people. Everybody's contributing on a daily basis. Everybody's building things. And they're generally, if not one of the best, they're certainly highly qualified to sort of make big technical decisions and those kind of things. And I think over time, that role evolves into something that's much more of a business role than necessarily a technical role. So you're the CTO of a five or even a $10 million business. Their job is really to take company strategy and then align that to technical strategy. They might meet with big customers. They might, there's lots of things that go into the role at a bigger company where, and it gets, I would say the role gets, by and large, gets less and less hands-on, like any other role, gets less and less hands-on and much more about leadership, setting culture, all those kind of things as the company evolves. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, it's still definitely helpful. One thing you've said a couple of times is that these teams should be independent and autonomous. They should be able to 
handle all the different parts of any task that they're given within the team versus relying on outside help from somewhere. Why is that? What, what does that come from? Why should they be independent? You mean? Yeah, that, that need to be autonomous. I think it's a, it's a lot of what we talked about around decision-making. And so let's take a specific example. Let's say I'm, I'm building a new feature. And so there are a bunch of decisions that have to be made about that, that feature. So how should it be built? So we need somebody from product that can go meet with the customers and understand what the customer is asking for, and then speak on behalf of the customer for requirements and things like that. There's how it should be built. And so you need someone that's a technical leader to understand how does, not only how does this thing need to be built, but how does it need to fit into the rest of the product? So you need somebody that understands not only what we're working on as a team, but also understands how that fits into the wider, into the wider product. So there's a bunch of technical decisions around how are we going to build this? What's the right way to do it? And how do we make sure that it conforms to the design specs and the the conventions that we've established as an organization? There's so there's a technical leadership role. Then there's what does it look like? How does it how does the customer interact with it? What's the user experience? We need somebody on the team that can design those things and iterate those designs and things like that. So there's lots of these decisions that all have to be made. And so you can imagine. If it's you and me and four or five other people who are good at what they do, we can probably, we can get in a room or we can get on a Zoom call or whatever. We can talk through these issues and make decisions quickly. However, if every time I want to change the user experience, and maybe I've got an idea about how something should be done. If every time I want to do something, I need to go ask somebody, hey, is this okay? Hey, is, does this look right? Uh, every one of those conversations, every one of those cycles slows down how quickly we can move. So we, we end up having people sitting and waiting while the rest of the organization makes decisions or we don't get as much out of the team. And the other thing is, is that if we're all talking about this on a day-to-day basis and we're shipping small pieces of it and we're seeing how our customers use it, we're a lot closer to the customer on this particular feature than anyone else in the company is. So we should know more about it than anybody else. And so I think it just breeds this, uh, this culture or this way of working where we're not constantly having to go ask for permission or ask someone to approve something or things like that. And those are the things that tend to really bog an organization down. Yeah. And in in talking about recruiting and adding folks to a growing team, an interesting place to start actually would be the the hierarchy of needs that you outline for product and engineering. Could you outline the that hierarchy and the different components of it and um, how they come together? So I came up with this idea of like, what does it take to what motivates? And this is probably engineering specific. It may be true of other parts in the organization, but I think this is, I certainly apply it to engineering, maybe because that's what I've done the most of. But at the bottom of the, of the pyramid is at market compensation. So I think your company needs to be prepared 
to pay whatever the market is for that specific geography and position. Because otherwise, what you're creating uh, at some point, everyone on your team is going to be inbounded by a recruiter. And if they don't feel like they're being paid at market or they're not being paid fairly, it gives them an excuse to look around, if nothing else. So at the bottom is like, pay people what the market says you should be paying them at a minimum. And then the second level is strong team and culture. And we've talked a lot on this this episode about uh, all of the things that go into it. We talked about values. We've talked about how teams are structured, transparency, autonomy, all these things we've talked about. Having humility, all these things create or at least set the table for you to have a strong team and culture within the engineering or product and engineering organization. So that's the, that's the second layer. The third is what I call a compelling mission. So is the company working on something that people can get excited about solving? Do we have a problem that's interesting? Maybe we're applying new technology today. That would be, are we working on something that's at least got AI as a part of it so that I, as an engineer, am getting a taste of what it's like to build AI into a product or whatever? Like, do we, is the product that we're building interesting? And then the fourth level would be career development and advancement. And this is something I pulled from, I read a book by Reed Hoffman called The Alliance a number of years ago. I don't remember what it came out. Just had this idea that relationships with top employees are much more like a sports contract than they are anything else. And the way he challenged people to think about it is, look, I've got... For the next two years, I want us to agree that we need the following things from you. We need you to work on these things. And in return, we're going to give you the following things. And I think those things take the shape of, we talked about compensation, that's an obvious one. But what a lot of software engineers are looking for in particular is, am I developing not only my skills, so am I working on, we just talked about Am I working on interesting tech? But if I want to be a manager, am I give, are you giving people the shot to do that? Are you giving them very clear paths to get better at their craft and what they do so that they don't, like, they don't really need to look around? First of all, do you understand what they want to do? Have you spent enough time with them to understand what, get, what motivates them, what gets them excited? And then are you being specific about how you help them get where they're trying to go. And it might be that at the end of that two years, the right answer is for them to go somewhere else. And that's a great outcome. I think that's what a lot of people miss is a great outcome. If somebody moves on from your company, but their message to everybody they know is that, you know, hey, your company, you know, this company was a great company to work for. They did everything they could. I just, you know, it wasn't for me anymore. That's a tremendous message in the marketplace. And so I, but I, I think people tend to think, well, we need to keep people for eight or 10 years for that to be a successful outcome. And I just don't think that's the case anymore. So anyway, that's the, that's the fourth level. And the last is, and this is something that maybe is just me, but uh, everybody wants to be a part of a winning company. 
So are we beating the competition? Are we getting better? Is the company growing? Do we have objective measures that we're winning? And for me, this was something that I'm a very competitive person. And, you know, we used to, you know, take pictures of our competition CEO and put them on a dartboard and throw darts at it and like crazy stuff like that, um, because I want to win and I want to be around people that care about winning. So, so just to recap, it's at market compensation, strong team and culture, compelling mission, career development and advancement and winning. Are you like a football coach and you bring out the the tweets and you staple them onto everyone's desk? Exactly. I get a... <laughs> That's right. That's right. Look what they said about us. Yeah. Look what the competition's doing. Look who they hired or who they fired recently. All that stuff. That's awesome. What does it mean to to always be... So you've, you have this hierarchy of needs... And you're as a CEO, you're focused on making sure they're all they're all there within your product org. But how do you go about how do you use that in recruiting? How do you go find new folks to join your team and convey that hierarchy of needs in that recruiting effort? Yeah, I think this is something that this is a topic that honestly is different in my current role. I spent a lot of time in the start in the startup ecosystem. And so a lot of my what a lot of my beliefs and what I've seen work, I think, come from that. And I, I think some of them apply in my current role at Pacific Lake, but maybe some are not as applicable. So the the number one way to find great people, you know, full stop, is referrals. Like it's not even close. If you look at the stats when you get to employee retention and all these kind of things. The number one way to find great people is referrals from your current employees. And so one of the questions that I encourage people to ask as they're hiring somebody is, who do you know that would follow you here? And if the answer is, oh, I know, you know, I've got these five people on my team, they're amazing. And like, that's a great answer. If it's like, yeah, there's really nobody on my team I'd be excited about working with probably tells you a little something about the current team they're on and maybe something about the person that you're looking at. So I just, I have this idea of, and it's not, a, it's not a unique one, of course, that just referrals, incredibly important. And I think the second, the second thing I spent a lot of time talking about is that you, everyone on the team, and I think this was in the go-go days of the last five years when you couldn't hire a software engineer it was incredibly important to always be recruiting. And this is a responsibility for everyone on the team, but specifically for the leadership on the team. And what I would do is I would spend an hour or two each week doing direct outreach on either on LinkedIn or I would, I would ask people I knew like, hey, who should I be talking to? It doesn't matter if they're looking now, I just wanna meet people. And it's a lot like, it's just a relationship sale in the end. And so if, when the opportunity presents itself that we might be hiring, if I've spent the time to get to know somebody over the past six months, 12 months, 18 months, two years, whatever it's, whatever it's been, my chances of being able to pull them in and have them be legitimately interested in whatever I'm working on much higher than a cold outreach at the time when 
I'm trying when I'm running the hiring process. So I guess the first one is the referral stuff is big. And this idea of always recruiting. And I think I've got a kind of a script that I took from someone, I forget who it was, around how to do cold outreach well on LinkedIn and other and other platforms like that. And I think just caring about people and being interested in them and listening to what they have to say, what they're looking for, and being specific about how what you are doing helps them. If we go back to that hierarchy of needs conversation, how does what your company is doing help them get where they're trying to go? And if you can answer that question in a compelling way, there's a really good chance they're going to come and work for you. Those are a couple of just like core concepts that I've used. I think where where I've maybe learned a bit in the last uh, in the last few years is around the use of recruiters. And in my role here, I do a lot of executive level hiring. So I'm involved in, if we're hiring a CTO at one of our companies, I'm almost always involved in that process. I think in the past, I've, I don't know I've ever used a recruiter, like ever. And because I just, either the company I was working for couldn't afford it, or we didn't see the value, or we had great networks and we would just hire from the network. And so the use of recruiters is something I've learned. And I think I've I think I'm much better at it now than obviously I was two, three years ago. And I think, so I think there's a place for using recruiters, but I think what I see companies do is that you can be lazy about the first two things we talked about and, or just maybe it's not a focus. And I think ultimately I still believe direct contact with, with others in the marketplace and referrals and things like that are more effective but i also understand that there are times when there's a time constraint you maybe you don't have the time to do those other things i think this is actually one of my favorite parts of your doc partially because i'm enjoying sales and finding who's my who's my data buyer on on linkedin and putting their email together and all that and this process sounded really similar of that ceo led recruiting how do you go about identifying companies that you want to hire from who's like the right level of seniority that might be a good fit for a certain role at your company? I, I assume that's a, a skill you refine over time too, as you get to meet more of these people. But how do you, what, are, are there any helpful frameworks for identifying the right people to reach out to at other, maybe similar companies? So I think if you if you have the time and you're and you're doing this on a you know spending some time on it every week the things that I tend to look for are do is there anybody in my network who knows like how do I go maybe it's 2 degrees away or something like that from somebody and do as much in that network as I can so I can ask somebody hey this person's interesting I see that you're connected on with them what can you tell me about them before I ever do any outreach? And so I think there's a, if you are deliberate and you, and this is something you're working on consistently, I find that that's, you know, as with anything else, if I can get back channel or, you know, a warm introduction or anything like that, the process is just that much better. 
without that, I think it's a, there's the obvious one of looking at your competitors and figuring out, you know, if they're doing things that are, you know, maybe they're faster than you or they're operating better than you, you know, can you poach somebody directly from the competition is an obvious one. But the, and then I think the, the other is just to look at, you know, companies that are adjacent that are your size, or maybe the companies that are ahead of you by 12 to 18 months and, or maybe even two years ahead of you and hiring from companies that maybe they're not, there may not be any industry crossover, but you can infer from the fact that they've been at this other company that's been on a similar track to where you're trying to go. But they're, like I said, they're, if you want to be at 10 million, maybe you're hiring from companies that are already at 20 and you're hiring managers that know what it looks like to operate at 20 so that you're always hiring ahead. Uh, and they, you're not, you know, they can grow with the company as opposed to them having to learn a bunch of things on the job. That's one other thought. And then the last is, particularly in the last 12 to 18 months, you know, hiring where companies are laying people off is an obvious one. And I think there's lots of ways to figure that out. Uh, if you're paying attention on LinkedIn in your area and you, you know, you're focusing in a specific geography, you know, just paying attention to the trade journals in your area. There's one in where I live that talks about the companies that are struggling, that are laying off, companies that are hiring. So you can pay attention to that list. There's a site called layoffs.fyi that tracks companies sort of around the United States. And you can you know, see which companies are laying off there. But the thing with layoffs is, unless the company's in r- real trouble, like the bottom 20% are who's getting laid off. So that's the, you know, it can be a source of great frustration. Like you're just going to run into a bunch of people who are mediocre at what they do. What are some of your must-haves in recruiting a new person to your team? So the I used the this guy that built Stack Overflow, a guy named Joel Spolsky, who had this the thing is like 2005 or something like that, came out with this uh, idea of like smart and gets things done. And it's really, that's, so smart, get things done is a great culture fit. Everything else you can teach. But I think there's, those are probably the three things that matter most. It doesn't, somebody that doesn't know the specific language that we have, but is really smart and can pick things up quickly. I'd much rather have that person than, you know, somebody who's maybe spent 10 years in the tech stack that I'm on, but is doesn't care about delivering as much more about like it's a it's a science project. Things are a science project as opposed to getting work done and delivering value. So like those are the things that I those three things are the things that I probably at a lower level specifically, those are things that I screen for first. What have we not hit on in building high-performing product orgs that we should touch on before closing? I'm going to answer your question potentially differently than maybe what you had in mind, but I think the the most common mistakes I see from CEOs in particular is 
when things are going poorly, and I totally understand why this happens, when things are going poorly, there's a tendency, I think, to sort of put yourself in the middle of the problem and try and go, I'm going to go all the way down the hole on, I'm going to fully understand our tech stack and I'm going to understand how the database is architected and I'm going to understand all these, I need to understand all these things about the problem. And I think most often, if you are having problems, systemic problems, it's a result of one of two things. One, it could be the system that the company's operating within which, and, and a lot of times the CEO is the biggest offender of changing priorities, change, you know, making decisions based on what sales, what sales prospects want and all these kind of things. So I think there's this tendency to like put yourself in the middle of a problem and believe that you have to understand. So I guess back to what I was saying. So one of two problems. One, you have just a systemic problem and you've got a, you've got a system of getting things through the company and doing work that just is unproductive and doesn't work well. And so there's a spending your time time to spending your time trying to understand what's broken, absolutely worth doing, but spending time trying to understand all of the technical details and believing that you will be able to understand it at a level unless you are unless you came from a technical background where you can't just be snowed by someone who has been doing this their whole life i think it's just it's a reach and so i think staying out of the fray but being able to understand and problem solve absolutely important but getting into the minutia of like the specific parts of what is it like to build a roadmap or, you know, how's this person writing code and are we shipping what we should be shipping tends to be a bit of a fool's errand. And I think the, the second and much more likely cause of most problems is that you just have the wrong people in leadership. And because you do, things are not working the way that they need to work. And so a lot of CEOs are slow to make changes at in senior leadership because for lots of different reasons, it can be really disruptive. But I think there's, if you have problems and you're not able to get answers to those, to what's going on and the people who work directly for you aren't able to explain what's going on, it's possible you just have the wrong people. It's generally a result of one of those two things. And I think focusing on one of those two things instead of burying yourself in the problem itself might be a better way to go about things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Scott, thank you for coming on the podcast and really appreciating to chat more about high-performing product work. So it's a place I'm trying to learn more about. So this has been a ton of fun and, and value for me and I'm sure many others. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me on. Uh, It's been a blast. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. 
for full episode transcripts in our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com. Thank you.